1: to declare your praises, declare your worth, and declare your glory, and may we do so, Lord, with a full heart, and I pray that you would come and just fill up whatever may be lacking in our praise, whatever may be lacking in our trust and faith in you and in our love, and Lord, may it be pleasing to the Father above. Thank you for bringing us here this morning. May we glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name, and God's people said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Would you join me this morning in prayer? Father, this morning I thank you for the gift of life. We acknowledge that you are indeed the creator of all things and the giver of life. You know us before we are born, each and every one of us, Lord. Our hearts break at the atrocities that take place daily in our nation, in our neighborhoods, and really around the world in abortion clinics. Lord, this morning we pray that you would change the hearts of the people of this nation. Open their eyes to see the evil that is being committed. Open their eyes that they may see your son Jesus on the throne, and that in seeing him they would bow the knee to him and turn from their sin. Father, in light of all the death around us every day, we praise you that your son Jesus conquered death, rising from the dead, and that one day he will do away with death forever. May you bring that day quickly, and Father, we thank you that you have forgiveness and mercy for all who would turn to you, no matter if they've performed abortions or had them, all can be forgiven through the sacrifice of your son, his blood shed for us. Lord, help us to extend your mercy and grace to all, no matter where they come from, what they've done, or where they stand on any given issue. Father, we pray that you would help us to fight for life and to protect the innocent, Lord, we love You. We worship You. We praise You this morning. And we pray all these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at a big section of Scripture, Genesis 28-35. through So if you want to go ahead and flip there, why don't we start with a word of prayer before we get into this. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this family of brothers and sisters who love You. Lord, this morning our desire is to hear from You. Speak to us through your word this morning, through me. Father, as we gather, Lord, would you just speak a message to this body of believers, Lord, and to each one of us here today. Unite us together in faith, in unity, and in love through the power of your Spirit. Father, let no one leave this morning without a word from you. Grant me the ability, Lord, to speak your truth this morning. Give me the blessing of your Holy Spirit to speak into people's hearts by clearly and correctly teaching and applying your word. Lord, I pray this all in the name that is above every other name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our our summer series through the book of Genesis. Uh, You may remember we actually started last summer, and we're kind of coming back during the summers to Genesis. And just so you don't think we're not skipping anything intentionally, the goal of this series in Genesis is kind of a a 10,000-foot view of Genesis. So we're kind of taking some of the big chunks, some of the the main characters, and looking at their life, which is why this morning you may notice that we're going to be looking at eight chapters of Genesis this morning. It's a little different. You know, normally here at OVBC we maybe do about ten verses a sermon, so eight chapters is a little bit different than ten verses. So it's going to be a different style of sermon. Uh, We're not going to be able to get into every little nook and cranny of the text. We're going to probably have to just skip over some parts that will be left for another time. Um, And that's kind of the disadvantage of this approach. You know, you're going to have to leave some stones unturned, some questions unanswered. Um, Not every verse is going to get a deep treatment. However, the advantage to this approach is that we're going to understand one of the most pivotal characters in the book of Genesis and hopefully a fresh and new light hopefully fit him in, Jacob, into the big picture of Genesis, into the big picture of the Bible, and understand his life in a way that we may not be able to if we just focus on it little teeny piece by piece. So that's kind of the agenda this morning. We'll be going through eight chapters, like I said, chapters 28 through 35. This entire block of scripture is basically the story of Jacob's life. Jacob was a nomad. So most of the story is going to move around a lot to different locations. It's kind of a travel narrative. He's traveling in a lot of the story. Now, he was a traveler for a lot of different reasons that we're going to discover along the way. He wasn't always traveling by his own choice. And so because of that, and because of the difficulties of kind of preaching such a long piece of the Bible, I've kind of structured this sermon like a journey. So as we go through the eight chapters, we're going to kind of just go through in order through the story of Jacob's life. We're going to be following him on his journey, and I'm going to be doing my best to help us to understand the story and help us understand what message God has for us here this morning. To do that, certain parts of the sermon are going to blow through big chunks of the text really quick. We're just going to zoom over them to kind of continue the story. It's going to seem like we're kind of flying by. You know, you're looking out the window, and the landscape's just going by. Three points in the story we're going to kind of camp and dig a little deeper into the story. So metaphorically, of course, we're going to set up our tents and uh, dig in and really find out what God is doing at three points in the story. And so within this, these eight chapters, I want to highlight three major things. And I hope that makes sense. I think you'll understand what I mean once we really get going. I'll I'll make it very clear where we're going to camp, where we're going to stop for a little bit. But before we join Jacob on his journey, we need to answer one important question. Who wrote Genesis and Why? So often when we read the Pentateuch, which is just a fancy way of talking about the first five books of the Bible, we skip this question. Everyone gets it for the letters of Paul, right? Everyone knows the first rule of studying the, the letters of Paul is, who was Paul writing to? What was the situation going on there? That type of thing. But a lot of times when we get to the Old Testament, we kind of skip that step. I don't know why. It just seems to be something we do. Um, but it's really important for understanding any piece of literature, especially the Bible. Think about it like this. Let me illustrate it with this concept. How many of you have ever read Animal Farm by George Orwell? Okay, a lot of people. Well, it's basically a book about animals on a farm, as you might be able to glean from the title. Um, And if you just picked it up in a vacuum, you would read about pigs and cows and stuff that happens on a farm. And you would read about these pigs that try to take over the farm, and you'd probably be kind of confused, and like, okay, that's an interesting, weird book, right? But if you understand who George Orwell was, the time in which he was writing and why he was writing it, it all falls into place. Turns out he was writing a blazing critique of Joseph Stalin and his regime, and it suddenly takes on so much more meaning. You begin to see the symbols and things like this. Now, Animal Farm, of course, is a fiction, made-up story to teach a point. The Bible is not, but I think you get the point. If we skip over why something was written or who it was written to or even when, we can lose a lot of the meaning, especially in a historical book. So who wrote it is the question. Well, Jesus believed that Moses wrote it, so I think we can take his word for it. Scholars will go back and forth, believing scholars, non-believing scholars, and they will come up with the most insane theories, anything to believe that it wasn't Moses who wrote it. Um, and we don't need to go into those, but a lot of them turn out to be really ridiculous. You know, and then it's like a lot of scholarly research. They come up with this very intricate theory of, well, this person wrote this part of this book, and this person wrote this, and then 10 years down the road, none of the scholars believe that anymore anyway. So that's usually what happens. So Jesus believed that Moses wrote it. I'll take his word for it. And if Moses wrote it, then he was writing to the Israelites. The next logical question, then, is at what point in their history was Moses writing the book of Genesis to them? Well, the most plausible answer to this question is that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy probably sometime right before he died. And just as the Israelites were about to go into the promised land for the very first time. Think about it. The amount of years between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Exodus events where they go out of Egypt into the Promised Land is at least 500 years. At least 500 years. So from Jacob to the Exodus event, there's probably about 500 years. That's a really long time. So this entire group of Israelites who's now on the borders of the Promised Land waiting to go in, God fulfilling his promises that had taken place 500 years in the past, They need a reminding of who they were and what they were doing and why. Where they came from. In fact, the entire group of Israelites that was about to go into the Promised Land weren't even alive in Egypt. They had been born in the deserts after Egypt. And so it seems that Moses is writing these books to solidify the history of Israel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and to send an encouraging message to a group of people who are about to do something that without God on their side was impossible they were about to take a terrifying leap of faith going into a land of enemies and try and conquer essentially declaring war on everyone in the region this is why their leader Joshua is told countless times by God be strong and courageous if you read the first chapter of Joshua I think they say that at least three or four times be strong and courageous that should hint at you that he's going somewhere really scary he needed to be reminded. In fact, like I said, the entire generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt died in the desert for their lack of faith in God because they were terrified of going into the land. They did not trust God to get them through. So keep this picture in your mind as we look at Genesis 28-35. through A great company of Israelites ready to enter into the land that had been promised. 500 years ago, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A land filled with strong enemies, a land that they could only conquer if God was truly on their side. I'm sure that the thought was running through their minds is, is God really on our side? Is God going to be faithful to these promises? If not, we're dead. This is one of the main questions that the Holy Spirit, through Moses, writing about Jacob, answers. Is that not a question we have today? Have you ever wondered, is God with me? How do I know? What does that even look like? And so that's what we're going to explore this morning through the story of Jacob. Titled the sermon, I Will Be With You. And I think you'll see how that becomes the theme of Jacob's life. So beginning in Genesis 28, if you want to turn there, kind of give you a quick background, last week's episode was that Isaac had just been tricked by Jacob into blessing him instead of Esau. Remember, they were twins. Esau has now married some of the pagan women of the land, Canaanite women, which was a no-no. Esau has found out now that Jacob tricked his dad into giving Jacob the blessing, and Esau is angry. Esau was a big manly man, hairy and murderous, and he's angry. He's going to kill Jacob, or at least that's his plan. Rebekah, Esau and Jacob's mom, Isaac's wife, has found out That Esau is going to kill Jacob, who's her favorite son. And so she tells Jacob, you need to leave now. I don't want you to be killed. Rebecca then tells her husband, Isaac, Jacob's dad, that she doesn't want Jacob to marry any of those pagan Canaanite women, like Esau did, and Isaac agrees. So Isaac decides to tell Jacob to leave also, but for a different reason. And so as we come into the story, Isaac is giving Jacob a departing prayer. And so let's begin in Genesis 28, verse 1. says this, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paran Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you, and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And so Jacob leaves his family and everything he has ever known. He's leaving the promised land now to return to the land that Abraham came from. He's kind of doing a reverse Abraham. He's going from the promised land back into the land of Abraham's family. Kind of strange. But let's look for a second at Isaac's prayer. I want you to remember three things as we continue the story they are going to come up later. Three things that Isaac prays for Jacob. One, Isaac prays that God would bless Jacob with a huge family. Two, Isaac prays that God would give the blessing of Abraham to Jacob. And three, Isaac prays that God would bless Jacob with the land promise that God gave him and Abraham. So keep that in mind. A family or offspring... The blessing of Abraham and the land promise. Those are the things that Isaac says, I hope God gives this to you. He's praying that for Jacob. So keep that in mind as we continue. So Jacob heads away from home towards Haran. And just as a point of reference, Haran, where Jacob is going, is about 400 miles northeast of where he's at right now. That's a really long journey, especially in those days. Uh, He doesn't have a car. He doesn't have a stagecoach or anything like that. He's basically just walking. That's a really long journey, really dangerous. Most historians say it would probably take about a month, which makes sense. It actually seems pretty fast if you think about it. But I'm sure he had many adventures along the way. But our narrator here, Moses, selects one and only one event on the entire journey, 400-mile journey, to highlight. This must be important. Jacob has sat out on his journey, and one of the days, he's walking along. The sun begins to set, and he's forced to camp out in the wilderness in what the text calls a certain place. To Jacob, it's a night like any other, and this place is a place like any other. Which brings us to our first camping spot, our first point in the sermon, and it's this. Number one is that God makes specific promises. God makes specific promises. And so let's see. In Genesis 28, 10 and 11 says this, Jacob left Beersheba, which is where he was from, and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place. Notice how the author is emphasizing this word place. He came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. There must be something he's trying to hint at here, and that's the question. A certain place, this place, the place, a stone from that place. What are we missing? What is this place? Well, if you skip ahead a couple verses, you will find out that this place is called Bethel. Bethel is important throughout the rest of Scripture. If you just go to a concordance, you just type in Bethel, you'll find it all throughout the Old Testament. It's a place where prophets lived. It becomes kind of a holy place, and we're going to see why. But Bethel is also an important place because it's the same place when Abraham first came into the promised land, this is where Abraham built his first altar to God. Coincidence? I don't think so. So we can already see clearly that even though the, the text doesn't say anything, God is guiding Jacob. He decides to camp at this place because the sun set. He just, well, I'm here, I've got to camp here. It ends up being the exact same place where Abraham offered his first sacrifice to God in the promised land. Something important is going to happen. So Jacob, being tired, grabs a rock, nice and soft and makes for a good pillow, I guess, puts it under his head, and goes right to sleep. But during the night, he has an awesome dream. So let's continue reading in verse twelve. The text says this, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder or stairway, flight of steps, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Try to visualize what Jacob saw. That's why the text, the text is trying to get you to visualize. When it says behold, it basically means look, look. Keep saying that. Look, look, look. They're trying to get you to visualize it with your eyes. Try to visualize what Jacob saw. A stairway from the earth to heaven with God himself standing on top of it. Angels going up and coming down. What an incredible sight. And not only that, God speaks to him. And not only does he speak, He makes promises. This is amazing. Now, this whole stairway ladder thing sounds a little weird, right? But the message of this picture is simple. God is present with us here on earth. God is at work here on earth. He's not just sitting around distantly. And if this story of the ladder was all we had to go on, that would be okay. It would still send its message. But it's not. Did you know that Jesus explains this vision in the New Testament? Turn with me to John 1.47. We'll take a look at this real quick. This is Jesus' version of the vision. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I remember Jacob was a man full of deceit, so it's an interesting comparison. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, the first time I realized what Jesus is saying here gave me goosebumps, and it still does. See, Jesus' version of the story is mysteriously missing the ladder, the steps. That's because Jesus is telling us he is the ladder. He is the way to heaven. He is the mediator between God and men. Jesus is the living embodiment of God's presence on earth. Jesus is the link between heaven and earth, the link between God and humans. Remember what they called him, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God God. With us. Jesus says later in John, I am the way. The way to what? To God, the Father. So Jacob calls this place Bethel. He calls it, this must be the gate of heaven. Jesus claims that he himself is the gate to heaven. Friends, this is what we mean when we constantly say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and that everything in the Old Testament. Is pointing to Jesus. It really is. That's what Jesus declared with boldness. And he makes it very clear in this text in John. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. It prefigures his coming. And so back to Jacob. So let's have a reality check on what's going here. Let's let's make sure we're feeling the impact of this story. God Almighty seeks out Jacob. Jacob wasn't seeking God. He was just traveling on his way going to sleep. God comes to Jacob, seeks him out, a man who is running from his brother who rightfully wants to murder him, a man who had lived a life full of deceit and trickery, that's what his name means, and yet here he is receiving a vision and blessing from God. Let me ask you at this point, what has Jacob done to deserve this blessing, this covenant promise? Nothing. If, if anything, he's done something to not deserve it, right? He's lied and cheated his way. In fact, he hasn't shown any signs at this point of any faith in God. The only thing he has shown God so far is that he's willing to cheat and lie to get what he wants. He deserves cursing, not blessing. Do you know how many of God's laws he's probably broken already? Yet God seeks him out to bless him in covenant with him. Can you feel just the strangeness of that, the goodness of God. And when God speaks to him in the dream, it's not like he goes through, well, Jacob, you've been bad, but, you know, I guess. I'll... No, he just comes right out of the gate with blessing and promise. He says, I am God, and I'm going, here's what I'm going to give you. Here's a list of things I'm going to give you. I'm going to bless you. I'll be with you. It's the goodness of God. There's no other reason than the grace, faithfulness, and goodness of God. We worship an infinitely good God, A God who gives grace to cheaters. A God who seeks out sinners, even when they're running. What an important truth. Friends, we have to realize that we cannot grasp and take God's blessings, even with our hardest strivings, even with our best life, even with our hardest efforts to be good. You can't steal God's blessings with all the cunning in the world. And you cannot earn God's blessings with all of your good deeds piled up. God is the giver. God is the initiator. Any blessing that we receive from God is all grace. All grace. The story of Jacob clearly reminds us of that. So let's take a closer look at exactly what God says to Jacob. Look at verse 13 and 14. Again, God comes right out of the gate with making promises. Again, no condemnation, no wrath, no anger, just Hey, Jacob, I'm the God of your father and your grandfather, and I'm going to promise you some amazing things that I will do for you. It's breathtaking. So here's where I test how well you've been paying attention. Do you remember the three things that Isaac prayed for Jacob? It's okay. I probably wouldn't remember either if I didn't have it written down. Here's the three things that Isaac prayed for Jacob. Isaac prayed that God would bless Jacob with a huge family, that he would give the blessing of Abraham to Jacob, And that God would bless Jacob with the land promise that he gave to Abraham. Family, Abraham's blessing, and the land. Sound familiar? These are the first three things that God promises Jacob in this passage. Land, offspring, and blessing. We're meant to see God's faithfulness here in this passage, not only to Jacob, but to Isaac. He answers Isaac's prayer within the space of five verses later. Right there. And not only that, by being faithful to Isaac and Jacob, God is actually fulfilling his promises to Abraham. And so what we have here is a chain of the faithfulness of God. Do you see how his faithfulness and goodness is on display in this text? For all to see, layers and layers of promise and fulfillment and faithfulness and blessing to people who are cheaters and liars and stealers and idolaters, and all in all in the midst of all the chaos that happens in all these people's lives in the midst of them screwing up really badly and making some really bad decisions. Yet all the while, God is faithful. But God doesn't even stop there. He doesn't just promise the land, the offspring, and the blessing. No, he makes it personal. What he says next to Jacob, I think, is the key verse to this whole section. Verse 15, 28, 15, he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I mean, he doesn't just say, I'm with you. He says, I'm with you. I'll keep you. I'll bring you back. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere until I've done what I've promised. Talk about emphasis. This is much more than a promise of material stuff, this is the promise of a person. God isn't just promising Jacob, well, here, I'll give you some land. I'll give you a family. Like, you'll be good. He says, I'll give you myself. I myself will be with you. I will not leave you. You are not alone, and you will never be alone. But notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you're good and follow all the rules perfectly, I'll be with you. No. He says, I'll be with you. He doesn't say, as long as you do your part and try your hardest, I'll be with you. Only, I'll be with you. He doesn't say, you do such and such and I'll be with you. No. He gives Jacob no requirements. No contract. This is a one-way promise. Astounding. But this shouldn't be surprising to us. Awe-inspiring, yes. But not surprising. Because God throughout the scriptures is constantly promising this very promise. I will be with you. I will not leave you. Wherever you go, I will not leave you. Let's trace this theme briefly through a couple of scriptures. In Exodus 3.12, he says to Moses before he goes to talk to Pharaoh, he says, But I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. So not only does he tell Moses that he'll be with him, he says, I'm going to give you signs so that you know for sure that I'm with you. It's amazing to me. God never really asked us to just take him on his word. He says, I'll prove it. Let me give you signs to help you. He understands us. He understands our weakness. God promises to be with Israel in Deuteronomy 31.6. He says, be strong and courageous. Again, this is right before they're about to go into the promised land. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread for them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. I will not, he will not leave you or forsake you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And again, in the next book of the Bible, in Joshua, Joshua 1.5, God says this to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. He says the same to Israel. After all this, after they've gone into the promised land, the kingdom have split, and they've been exiled, vomited out of the land, God still is making promises to them. He's saying, even though you disobeyed me and you're exiled, I will not leave you. I'll bring you back. Listen to what he says to Israel in Isaiah 41.10. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. And again, in Isaiah 43, 2, he says something similar. He says this to the nation of Israel in exile. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. He's never going to leave his people it gets even more real in the New Testament. Jesus, like we said before, is the embodiment of this promise of God. Jesus is the embodiment of God's promise that I will be with you. This desire to be with us. Jesus is God with us. To the church, Jesus is God with us. Matthew twenty eight twenty. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Holy Spirit is poured out in us, God inside of us, In Acts 2.33, they say, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Holy Spirit poured out on all the body of believers. And even this, the end of the whole Bible, the goal towards which God is working all of human history, is the fulfillment of this very promise. I will be with you. Listen to the words of Revelation 21, 3, and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see what happens when God is with us? No more pain, no more tears, no more crying, no more death. This is where God is taking us. This is where God is bringing us. This is the end of all things. This is the end of human history, where everything is headed. Do you doubt God's goodness? Rest in that truth. All things will be made new. All pain will be done away with. This is a promise God has made to us. Not based on our goodness or our ability, but based on the work of his son, Jesus Christ. God has promised us this. We worship and serve a God who makes promises. A God who is with us. A God who, because of the work of His Son, Jesus, has canceled the record of debt that we had. A God who looks at those who have placed their faith in His Son and says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A God who looks at us and says, nothing can or will separate you from my love. Nothing. If you don't know this God, I pray that he would open your eyes this morning to see his goodness. So let's continue on in the story. In chapter 28, look at verses 18 to 22. This is just after the dream. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob continues on his journey. Eventually, he reaches the land of the people of the east, which basically means the land of the non-God worshippers. These people did not know Jacob's God. But here he finds Laban, his mom's brother. This was his destination when he set out from home, 400 miles away, he finally found his way. Not only that, much like the story of Isaac's wife, he just so happens to be at the well when the right woman that he would come to marry is there. This is our second point this morning. God fulfills promises in spite of human sin. Remember what God has just promised to Jacob, offspring. Well, to have offspring, he's going to need a wife. So here we see that God is already in motion, beginning to fulfill the things he has just promised Jacob. And so basically what happens is he's at the well, he sees these people, and he says, hey, you guys know Laban? They're like, yeah, he's over there. And then they go, hey, there's his daughter. And then he sees Rachel, and he falls in love. And so he goes home with Rachel. Laban rushes to the well. They go home, and he says, hey, I would like to work, and as the price for my working, I'd like to marry your daughter. Laban says, sounds great. Um, How about seven years? Jacob says, okay, I'll work seven years, and then I can marry your daughter. So he works seven years, he comes to Laban, he says, okay, I've done my work, can I marry your daughter? He says, absolutely, they have a celebration, comes time for the wedding night, the lights are off, and Laban sends in his other daughter. And so Jacob sleeps with his other daughter, Leah, and so therefore is married to Leah, the other woman who he was not in love with and did not find attractive. Laban tricks Jacob. Jacob rightfully is very angry, and says, well, I still want to marry Rachel. And so Laban says, okay, I'll tell you what. You work another seven years for me, and you can marry Rachel. And he says, okay. So he works another seven years. Well, he actually marries Rachel before the seven years, and he works another seven years. It's a crazy story. And he actually ends up marrying both of their servants too. So he ends up with four wives. But the point is this. It's an absolute mess. I mean, he gets tricked into marrying a woman he didn't want to marry. He gets ends up having four wives. It's a mess. But as I read the names of the children that he has through these different wives, you might recognize some of them. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Dinah, Joseph, Benjamin. These are the names of the tribes of Israel. So in all this, look at how God's working. Think about it. God promises Jacob a huge family. Jacob meets Rachel, falls in love. Laban tricks Jacob into marrying Leah. Jacob marries Leah and then marries Rachel. Jacob never wanted to marry Leah, and if Laban had never deceived Jacob, he would never have married her. Yet six of the tribes of Israel are descended from her, this woman that he never wanted to marry. Not only that, but the tribe of Judah is descended from Rachel, the tribe of the kings of Israel, the tribe that Jesus himself came from. Do you see how God worked through the sin of Laban to prosper his own plan? Through Laban's deception, we get the kingly line that ultimately gives us Jesus Christ. God works in the midst of human sin. But I'm sure that Jacob couldn't have seen that at that time. I'm sure that at that time it was an extremely hard situation. But that's the point. God's plan is so much bigger than us. His goals and aims are so much bigger than any one individual in any moment. The pain and suffering and confusion that Jacob went through turned out for the good of the whole human race. Jacob was sinned against badly. Yet all the while, God was not only fulfilling his promises to Jacob, but he was with Jacob. Friends, I'm sure there is, everyone sitting here today can say that they've been sinned against deeply at some point in their life. By someone you love, I'm sure you have. I'm sure there's not one person in this room who hasn't been caused deep pain by someone else's sin our fathers, our mothers, brothers, sisters, friends, family, all of these relationships can cause us great pain at times. Pain so blinding and hurtful that at times we can't see through it. At times we wonder where God is in all of this. These are the times when we must trust that God is with us like he's promised and that God will fulfill his promises to us because we know he will. He works in ways that are far bigger than us and he works in ways in spite of of all the human sin in the world, somehow he turns it all into good for his purposes. Because he's faithful. He doesn't fail. And he's not failing. And I know we doubt this sometimes. We take a look at the world around and we see Christians being persecuted, beheaded. We see Christians in the media failing morally. We see secularism taking over Europe. We see the church in North America being overrun with consumerism and materialism, triviality. We see People all over the world chasing after false religions, false prophets, and false gods. And we think, is God absent? What is he doing? What is happening to his promise to make his people as numerous as the dust of the earth, right? But the story of weddings and wives and children of Jacob shows that God is never absent when human beings are scheming and plotting and deceiving each other. Somehow God will fulfill his promise to Jacob. We know this. So let's take a case study. This very promise, that Jacob's descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. God promised Jacob that. But at this point, I'm sure Jacob's doubting. Everything in his eyes has gone wrong. But check this out. By the end of these couple of chapters, Jacob has 13 children. By the end of the book of Genesis, we are told that he has 70 sons and daughters. God's fulfillment is progressing. By the end of the Old Testament, we see that Jacob's descendants have become a nation, the nation of Israel. But still, God's promise is not fulfilled. No matter how big the nation of Israel got, they were not as numerous as the dust of the earth. So did God ever fulfill his promise is the question. Well, the fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ, who descended from Jacob. As a descendant of Jacob and the true king of Israel, Jesus sends out his disciples to make disciples of all nations of the earth. The New Testament tells us clearly that this promise to Jacob that his offspring would be numerous as the dust of the earth is being fulfilled through people putting their faith in Jesus Christ and thereby being adopted into the family. In fact, Paul and Jesus, but mainly Paul in Galatians and Romans, teaches that those who put their faith in Jesus are the true descendants of Abraham and that they inherit the blessing of Abraham which is the Holy Spirit inside of us, God with us. Descendants of Jacob. All believers in Christ are descendants of Jacob. And finally, on the last day, at the end of all things, at the end of history, what do we see? Prophecy in the book of Revelation 7-9 says, And a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb robed in white with palm branches in their hands, a numberless multitude before the throne of God. The promise has been fulfilled. Do you see it? That's the big picture. Do you see how this connects the entire story of the Bible? It's so much bigger than, than you, than me, than Jacob, than Abraham. It all points to Jesus. And so when people sin against you, when you read the news and it seems like the world's a mess, Trust in the goodness and bigness of God's plans. He is still to this day fulfilling all these things. And he will work through all of the evil and sin in this world to one day make all things new, make all things right, and restore all things. Justice will be done. Justice is coming. We must trust in God. So back to the story, and I'm going to just finish up here real quick. So Jacob has four wives, 13 children, and he wants to go home. Eventually, through more deception and all these things, Jacob gets out. Jacob gets away from Laban. And if you want to catch up on that, you can read those chapters in between 30, 32 in there. And then Jacob is traveling home. And this is where the problem comes. Because guess who's at home? Esau, his brother who wants to kill him. It's been 20 years, but Jacob is terrified. Which brings us to our third and final point. God does not... Up with self-sufficiency, and so we see that Jacob wrestles with God. Join me in uh, Genesis thirty-two, twenty-four through thirty-one. It says this: and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And so Jacob wrestles with God himself. What a story. Don't ask me exactly how that works. The scriptures don't really tell us. The point of the story is this, though. Jacob, through this test, finally comes to a place where he realizes that all he has comes from God and not himself. He won't let God go, until he blesses him. He strives with God for his blessing instead of leaving God and seeking it on his own. This is the final transformation of Jacob's faith, so much so that God changes his name to Israel. This name change emphasizes this transformation. He has seen God face to face and will never be the same again. And this is a lesson for us today. I pray that you would hear this word. God does not value spiritual self-sufficiency. He does not put up with spiritual self-sufficiency. God values dependency on Himself. That's good news for us. Would you give up trying to earn your way into God's favor? Would you give up this feeling that you need to be spiritually self-sufficient, spiritually strong? Would you instead be like the man who prayed, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? That is the essence of dependency. That is the essence of faith. Like the Apostle Paul says, God wanted me to be weak so he could be strong. That is the posture of heart that God values and desires. Humble dependence. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God has promised that he will adopt us into his family if we will trust in Christ. He has fulfilled this promise and given us proof that Jesus Christ is his only son by raising him from the dead. He has made a way to himself for us, a way to God for us, a way full of mercy and grace, completely initiated by Him when we were running from Him. And so now the decision comes to us. Will I trust myself? Or will I trust Jesus? Will you trust yourself? Will you trust Jesus? Will you try to be strong? Or oh, you say, I can't be strong. I need Jesus. I'm weak. Lord, have mercy on me sinner. My friends, as we have seen today, God is more than worthy of our trust. He promises and He fulfills promises. He's our only hope. And so as our story ends with God appearing to Jacob one last time, let's end this morning by reading chapter 35, 9 through 15. Hear the way that Jacob has changed. So God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him in Bethel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these ancient stories of real men and women. Thank you that we can learn so much about your character from them. Lord, this morning I'm just humbled by your faithfulness by Your goodness, by Your mercy, by Your grace to us, extended to us when we don't deserve it. Father, I pray that You would open our eyes to this. Help us to see, Lord, that You don't desire strong people, but Lord, people who are dependent on You, people who acknowledge Your strength and our weakness. And Father, the irony is that when we acknowledge that, we do become strong through Your strength, Lord. I pray that you would let OVBC be a place, a church filled with Christians who are strong in your strength, Lord, not on our own, not on our own. Lord, help us to be in humble dependence upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at faith at You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.